Mark chapter 1 this morning. We will be in verses 4 through 8. The main activity of Mark's story doesn't begin until verse 14 after John is arrested. Everything that we are seeing here in these opening verses, verses 1 through 13, take place before John is arrested. This is John's ministry. And the question that confronts us is, why in the world did John come first? Why did God send him? And the answer is that John is preparing us for the story that Mark will tell us. And Mark's preparing us through John's ministry for their story concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's preparing us in these first 13 verses by giving us two voices that we are to listen to. Chapter 1, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Chapter 1, verse 4, John appears in the wilderness. John is one voice that we must listen to. The second voice is in verse 11. A voice came, our translation says came, but it's the same word as appeared in verse 4. A voice, John, appeared in the wilderness. Verse 11, a voice appeared, came from heaven. Two voices. We will examine John's ministry today as a voice in the wilderness. Next week we will examine the voice from heaven. Today, earth cries out. Next week, heaven also has something to say to us about this one who comes from Nazareth. And in the mouth of these two witnesses, the voice from heaven and the voice from earth, in the mouth of these two witnesses, these two voices, every word that Mark has asserted about Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, every word that Mark has to say to, him, say to us about him, every word is established. Verses 4 through 8, let's notice what John, Mark has to say here about John. We'll read through them in just a moment. But notice, first of all, that in verse 4, we are introduced to John. And John has come baptizing. He has come baptizing and proclaiming a baptism. This is the first activity that John engages in. And apparently in verse 5, he attracts quite a crowd. In verse 6, Mark describes to us John's appearance, his clothing, and what he ate. This is verses 4 through 6. It's the first section concerning John who baptizes. The second section is in verses 7 through 8. John proclaims one who is coming after him. And he gives three statements concerning or comparing himself and the one who is to come. He says the coming one is mightier than he. The coming one is more worthy than he. And the coming one will baptize with the Spirit. So let's read verses 4 through 8. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair 
and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These verses come in fulfillment of the prophecy that we see in verses 2 and 3. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare. A voice crying, prepare. John appears proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And thus, John's appearance in his proclamation of this baptism of repentance, the baptism of repentance is how the way of the Lord is prepared. How may we prepare for the coming of the Lord? Answer, repent and be baptized. This is John's message. Now, what, John, what Mark is doing here by speaking to us about John the Baptist, what he is proclaiming, as we look at what John is doing here, we will learn something about the way of the Lord who comes behind John. Because John has come to prepare his way. And as we look at John's preparations, the, the end of it all is not look at John. The end of it all is this is the way of the one who is coming. And so let's note several things about John and his preaching and his baptizing. In verse 4, John appears on the scene and he baptizes. He proclaims a baptism of repentance that results in the forgiveness of sins. All who experience this baptism of repentance will be forgiven of their sins. The reason why you ought to be baptized, the reason why you ought to repent, so that your sins may be forgiven. Second thing to notice here is that it is not this baptism that brings about the forgiveness of sins. John does not say, repent, John does not say, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Instead, Mark says, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance. The word baptized just means to immerse in water. And the phrase of repentance, a baptism of repentance, just tells us something about this baptism. Not just any kind of being immersed in water will result in the forgiveness of sins. Instead, the kind of baptism that John proclaims is a repenting baptism. Baptized repenters will receive the forgiveness of sins. And this is made more clear to us at the end of verse 5. These people are being baptized, confessing their sins. And there's two striking things to note here about what John is doing. First, John's preaching of baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins abolishes the temple and Israel. It's over for the temple. What John is doing here shortcuts the entire Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God redeemed His people from Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He entered into covenant with them. He would be their God. They would be His people. 
but how could a holy God dwell amongst an unholy people? And the answer was God gave them sacrifices. And you can go and read Leviticus chapter 5 this afternoon, but it's clear what God gave those sacrifices for. When a person had sinned, if he confessed his sins over the head of a lamb or a goat or two clean birds, and the animal then was sacrificed by the priest upon the altar, making atonement, the result would be the sins would be forgiven, dismissed, wiped away. The important thing to notice, though, is that it is only those people who had access to that tabernacle, to that altar, to that priesthood. They are the only ones whose sins could be forgiven, and thus they are the only ones who were the people of God. The people of God, you remember in the, in, in the wilderness, that tabernacle, all of the people of God are literally camped around that tabernacle, the center of which is the altar and the presence of God. This people exists as God's people because of those sacrifices, because of that altar, because of that temple. To destroy the temple would be to destroy the people as the people of God. And John comes proclaiming another means of obtaining the forgiveness of sins. Here is forgiveness of sins without sacrifice, without the temple, without the altar. And that means a new people of God. Not those gathered around the temple in Jerusalem. They are not the people of God any longer. Now there is a new people. Who are these new people? They are the repenters. They are the ones baptized. John proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and that abolishes the temple. It closes down Israel as the people of God. The new people of God are in the wilderness, gathered around John, baptized by him. They are not the ones who are gathered around the temple in Jerusalem. The second striking thing to notice about what John is doing here is he is preaching a baptism of repentance. What does baptism, being immersed in water, what does that have to do with repentance? Well, the context makes it clear what's going on. Look at verse 5. To be baptized, you had to go out. All Jerusalem and Judea were going out to be baptized. John is in the wilderness. The baptism is taking place outside of Jerusalem. The baptism is taking place in the wilderness. And so if you wanted your sins to be forgiven, you had to go out to be baptized in the wilderness. You had to leave Jerusalem behind. You had to be immersed in water. And this would create a division amongst the citizens of Judea and Jerusalem. There are some who go out. There are some who do not. Those who go out are the repenters. Those who do not are the impenitent. Those who go out are forgiven. Those who do not are not forgiven. Those who are forgiven are God's people. Those who do not go out are not forgiven and are not God's people. In other words, John's baptism 
in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem creates a division amongst the people of Israel. It creates a new group of people, the forgiven, the baptized, the repenters, the people who are waiting for the coming of the Lord. They have been forgiven outside of Jerusalem. They have been forgiven apart from the altar. They have been forgiven apart from the temple. And this new group of people then replaces the old Israel. God is creating a new people of God in the wilderness. They are surrounding John. It is the beginning of a new community. It is a community of people whose sins are forgiven. This is the new people of God. This is what baptism did. It drew a line between the unbaptized and the baptized. Repentance doesn't do that because repentance happens inside. You could have repented in Jerusalem, but you could not have been repentant and been baptized in Jerusalem. You had to leave that city behind and join a new community. And that's what we see in verse 4. John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 5, Mark makes explicit then that this new people of God that John is preparing through baptism was being created out of Israel. Their repentance and baptism brought them out of Israel. This is a moment that redefines who the people of God are. They are not Abraham's descendants any longer who live in Jerusalem around the altar. You can't remain in Jerusalem and think of yourself as a part of the people of God any longer. You must come out. You can't find forgiveness in the temple any longer. You must come out and be baptized. All things are changing now. Forgiveness of sins comes, behind, comes by leaving behind all that is familiar to you, by turning away from it, by confessing your sins, by aligning yourself with this new people of God. And just as in the Exodus when God called His people out of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, being baptized by Moses, so now God is calling out His people through the waters of baptism to create a new people of God. The difference is, in the Exodus, God called His people out of Egypt. Now, He calls His people out of Israel. Has Israel become as ungodly as Egypt was? Apparently, this is the message of John's baptism. And what Mark says to us in verse 6 confirms this. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, Mark tells us what John was wearing. He's wearing camel's hair robe, cloak, and a leather belt around his waist. If you go look at 1 Kings chapter, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, you will find out that John is dressed identically to Elijah. He looks exactly like Elijah of the Old Testament. And the fact that Mark records for us here what John was wearing means that Mark thinks it's significant that John is wearing these things. He records what he does because he wants us to think of John and Elijah as the same person. Elijah has come to Israel again. And that's not surprising 
Because Malachi chapter 4 had predicted that Elijah would come, and I think it'd be helpful for us to turn back to Malachi chapter 4 and to look at this. This is the last chapter of the Old Testament. And God foretold in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is exactly what's happening in John's day. The messenger comes with a message, turn! Repent! That's what John is proclaiming. Repent! Turn! What happens to those who do not turn? What happens to those who remain in the country of Judea and in Jerusalem, who do not come out, who are not baptized? What happens to all of those who inhabit this land, who remain a part of Israel? God will come and strike the land with a curse. That's exactly what Elijah did in the days of Ahab. He came to remind Israel and Ahab of the curse that God had promised upon her if she did not turn from her sin. The curse involved things like no rain, and that's why in Elijah's day it did not rain for three years. Now Elijah has come again. and This time Israel's doom is certain. Elijah, John, preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means the temple is useless. That means Israel is no longer the people of God in this day. You are not the people of God merely because you have Abraham's DNA. Elijah has come. God is on his way to Israel to strike this land with a curse. And the only way to escape is to come out, to repent, to be baptized, to join the new community of God's people. And back in chapter 1 of Mark, we are told what John is eating. John is eating locusts and wild honey. It's all the food you'll find in the wilderness. In other words, John is living off the land. He's scavenging. And that tells us that his ministry in the wilderness is not temporary. He's here in the wilderness to stay. He's not merely out in the wilderness because that's where the water is to, be, to baptize people. He's not planning to return to town for provisions. He is in the wilderness and this is where his baptism is taking place. Leaving Israel then means denying yourself and all the provisions you have in town. It means leaving it all behind. It means living in the desert and scavenging for food and eating only locusts and wild honey. It's the only way to have the forgiveness of sins, to leave everything else behind. It is the only way to be part of the people of God. It's the only way to save your life. If you seek to save your life by staying in Jerusalem with its plenty and bounty, the life you knew back in Jerusalem, if you seek to hold on to that, you will lose your life because God is coming to strike the land with a curse. And this gives us a window now into what it means for John to prepare the way for the Lord. First, John is preparing the way for the Lord by preparing a people for the Lord. And this is critical. Because if the Lord shows up before John's ministry has taken effect of calling people out 
of Jerusalem. If the Lord shows up before John's ministry is finished, there will be no survivors. If you stay in Jerusalem, if John has not called you out to receive the forgiveness of sins, if you remain behind in Jerusalem, the Lord is coming to strike that land with a curse. And so John appears to call out of Israel a people who repent and who are therefore prepared for the coming of the Lord. John prepares for the coming of the Lord by preparing a new community. But John's ministry also prepares for the coming of the Lord in another way. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. John prepares a new community and he points that community to Jesus. John preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 tells us that John preaches. He proclaims a message. This is the second message that he has to proclaim. He has proclaimed a message in verse 4, the baptism of repentance. Now he proclaims a second message. And we need to note one phrase in verse 8. It's the first phrase of verse 8. I have baptized you with water. John proclaims a message. The baptism of repentance. There are many from Judea and Jerusalem who respond and are baptized. And John says, to you, the baptized, whom I have baptized with water, I have an additional message. This is not a message in verses 7 and 8 that all Jerusalem and Judea heard. John's proclamation of the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is something that they all would have heard. But not this message. This is a message for the new community that John is preparing. And what is the message that John has for them? To these who have been baptized into this new people of God, to these who have left everything behind, to these who have now the hope of forgiveness of sins, John says, one is coming behind me. And this is actually John's main point. In verse 7, the verb, the action word, comes. The one who comes. That's the very first word in John's message. That's his main point. One is coming. And we know... I'm sorry, John tells us who is coming, but his main point is that someone is coming. John tells us several things about this person who comes, and each one of these things, John connects the person who comes with himself. He compares and contrasts himself with the one who comes. And there are three things that he says about this person. I'm sorry, four things that he says about this person. First, John tells us that the one who is coming is coming after him. He follows John. John has come to prepare his way, but that means that John is getting out of the way, and this one who is coming behind John will replace John. He will take over. He will run further than John has. He will follow in John's footsteps, but he will not be lesser than John as though John were the master and this one who is coming will be the servant 
or even the disciple of John. Instead, secondly, this one who comes after John is mightier than John. And thirdly, he is one, the strap of whose sandal, John says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. Removing a shoe was the one job that a slave was allowed to refuse. Even a slave was worth enough not to have to do that. But not John. John says, the shoe, the sandal of this one who is coming, he is so great that I am not even worthy to perform for him the lowest duty that even a slave would not, would not undertake. John does not even possess enough worth to serve this coming one by loosing and removing his sandal. And fourth, John tells us, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will bring the Spirit and he will pour him out upon you who have come out of Jerusalem. And these four comparisons that John makes combine to tell us something about the one who is coming after him. This one who follows John. John has prepared his way. And Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 have said that this coming one would be the Lord himself. This is the mighty one who is coming. The mighty God of Isaiah's prophecy. The one who is coming is so much greater than John. John is not even worthy to perform for him a task that not even a slave would perform for his master. And finally, this one who comes gives us the Spirit. He will bring the Spirit. And with Him, He will usher in all of the promises of God's new covenant. Who has the ability to bring God's new covenant to us? Who has the ability to pour out the Spirit upon us? None but God Himself. This is God's prerogative alone. And thus, the one who follows John is God Himself. And here is John's witness that the one who is coming is God. This is John's own witness to identify him to us. He is the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord who is coming. John may have baptized these people, but he's not actually gathering them to himself. There is a greater one coming and John points their attention to him. My ministry is to baptize you with water, but that is not sufficient. He will come and bring to you a spirit. And this tells us then that John's baptism was actually not enough to receive the forgiveness of sins. If you repented and you were baptized by John as a repenter, you would not actually receive the forgiveness of sins. Because John tells all those who've been baptized, you are waiting for someone else. I can only baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will bring the new covenant. And the promise of that is the forgiveness of sins. John has called the people out to wait for the one who would bring the Spirit and the new covenant with its promise of forgiveness of sins. And so John has called these people out of Israel. He has given them every reason to hope that their sins will be forgiven, but he can't actually bring that about. His baptism can't actually deliver to them what he proclaims. But he can point 
to the one whose coming will. He can direct them to rest their faith, not on him, not on his baptism, but to rest their faith upon the coming one, the Lord himself, who baptizes with the Spirit. So what does Mark want us to take away from John's ministry? Why is this here for us? We don't live in Jerusalem. John the Baptist is not proclaiming to us, come out of Jerusalem and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He's not saying to us, you're still waiting for the one who brings the Spirit because the Spirit has already come. The one who brings him has come. What does Mark want us to take away from John's ministry? There are six things that we will look at. And they all go together in one long chain. The first thing that Mark wants us to hear from John's testimony is who Jesus of Nazareth is. John has come to prepare the way for one who is mighty. One who John says he is not worthy to remove his shoes. This is God himself who walks in the same way and path that John himself does. John is in this wilderness. This wilderness is on this planet. John is outside Jerusalem in the country of Judea. It is part of this world. And the expectation is that John will be followed by the one who comes, who is God himself. God has entered into our world. And this is a complete reversal of everything that went wrong in Genesis 3. God has been distant ever since mankind sinned. He has driven man out of, this, out of his presence. And even though God came down in the tabernacle in the temple to dwell amongst his people, he was nevertheless distant from them. How many walls and curtains were there? No one was allowed into his presence except the high priest once a year with the blood of the sacrifice. But John has appeared in the wilderness. He has called the people to prepare for the coming of the Lord. That's something Israel has never known. God himself would come to them. That he would exit his temple and appear in the wilderness where even the common people could come and gather around him. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of glory who has come down from heaven to live amongst men. The second thing that John does is he prepares the way for the Lord. He wants us to look, Mark wants us to look at John's ministry and to see in it the way of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is not the main attraction here. He's forming a new community of people but he's preparing that people because the Lord is coming. And he's pointing those whom he has baptized to him. And that means that when the Lord comes, he will walk the same path John is walking. He too will preach the good news as John has. And the people also will gather around him as they gather around John. John is like a messenger who calls the people to line the way, line the road so that the Lord will pass by them. This means that by watching John, we can learn something about the ministry of the Lord who follows him. When the Lord comes, he will abolish the temple we will find in Mark's gospel. He will call together a new people of God. He will call them to repent. He will call them to deny themselves, to leave everything behind, to come out of Israel. He will promise them the forgiveness of sins. And so what John does here lays down the pattern of what we may expect it to look like to follow the Lord on his way. What does it mean to follow Christ? And the answer is, 
it's not a great deal different than what John called these people to do, to prepare for the way of the Lord. John calls them to prepare for the way of the Lord. The Lord comes and calls us to follow in his way. And thus the way that John prepared is the way that the Lord walks, which is what he calls us to follow him in as well. What does it mean then to follow Christ? What does John's preparation tell us about what the Christian life as followers of Christ looks like? And John's baptism has a lot to tell us about what it means to be a Christian. And we know that because of what Peter does in Acts chapter 2. Turn over to Acts chapter 2 with me. What John is doing in the wilderness is actually setting a pattern for us of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And Peter makes this clear for us. He shows us that Jesus' ministry upon this earth fulfilled and accomplished everything that John prepared the way for. This is Peter's first sermon, the first sermon ever preached by a follower of Jesus Christ after his return to heaven. Let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 41. Peter concludes his sermon, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus of Nazareth, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, that would be the promise of the Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself out of this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice several things. First of all, Peter strikes the same note that John did. Verse 36, Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord. He is God himself, and he is the Christ. That's how Mark's gospel opens. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God. Yet something's different here in Acts 2 that we don't see in Mark 1. And that is the end of verse 36. Jesus has been crucified. We're on the other side of the cross now. And what is the situation now that Jesus has been crucified? Well, the message is actually about the same as John's message. Did you see it? Repent. Be baptized. For the forgiveness of sins. That was John's message. But there's something that's different. I'm sorry, we'll get to that something that's different in just a minute. John says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Peter says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Mark was calling people out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, into the wilderness and Peter calls them to do the same thing. Save yourself out of this crooked generation. God is calling you to himself. That means being part of Israel is not where the Lord is. 
He's somewhere else. He's not in Israel. And he's calling you out of Israel to himself. And the result of this call is a new community. Just like as a result of John's preaching. 3,000 come out of this crowd that is listening to Peter. They are baptized and they enter into a new community. They enter into the church of Jesus Christ. And like John, Peter here is pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. He's calling the people of Israel to follow him. What does it look like to follow him? The third thing that John's baptism, his preparation for the Messiah, the third thing that that shows us is this. Entering into this new world, walking the way of the Lord, Following Jesus Christ means coming out. John says, I'm in the wilderness. Come out of Jerusalem and enter into the new community. In Acts chapter 2, it means the same thing. Save yourself from this crooked generation. The Lord God is calling you to himself. The desert where John ministers is actually very significant. Because it's a place of locusts and wild honey. That's what it looks like to prepare the way for the Lord. And that's what it looks like to follow him. John prepares the way. The Lord comes and his disciples walk then in the same way. The order is John, followed by the Lord, followed by his disciples. So what is that way? It is eating locusts and wild honey. It is living outside of Jerusalem. It is coming out. Entering into this new community, the community of the forgiven of sins, means coming out. It means repenting. It means turning away from this world. It means confessing your sin. It means being on the outside of the old community. And that means, in the book of Acts, being an outcast. That means persecution. That means rejection. That's what we see it means in this book of Acts. To follow Jesus Christ, to follow the way of the Lord, means persecution. The fourth thing that this means, John's baptism means for us, is that entering this new world, following Jesus Christ, being a Christian, still means entering the new people of God. John prepares the way, come out and join this people. And that's still the way it is in Acts. What we see here in Acts 2 is the beginning of the church, the people of God. Is Peter calling these people in Acts 2, is he calling them to enter into the invisible church? Or is he calling them to enter into a visible community? And the answer is both. But the primary emphasis is the visible church. Because that's how it concludes. Those who received his word, verse 41, were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What does it look like to come out of the world and to enter into the people of God? In John's day, it meant leaving your house and going out into the wilderness and joining John's community. What does it look like today? It looks like baptism. 
because that's what Peter calls the group to do. There's a huge group of people. Peter says, repent. You know what you would have seen? Nothing. You can't see repentance. But if he says, repent and be baptized, suddenly the crowd is going to split into two. There's those who haven't repented. They're not coming forward to be baptized. There's those who have repented. They're coming forward to be baptized. This baptism that Peter calls for splits the crowd into two, into the repenters and the non-repenters. It splits the crowd into the people of God and not the people of God in the same way that John's baptism did. Baptism, that Peter calls for here, creates a new visible public people of God. You can't be a repenter and remain silent and stay on the outside of this community. You can't be a repenter and remain in Jerusalem. Jesus will have no hidden followers. This new people will be a public people. And it will be a people that you enter into through baptism. But the great news about this people is that unlike John's community that did not have the Spirit, Peter says, verse 38, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God pours out his spirit upon this new people created by repentance, by baptism. God pours out his spirit upon them. This is the people of God. And what is the effect of their receiving the spirit? Was the effect that it created a lot of individual Christians who lived in Jerusalem and who had no connection with one another? Did the Spirit come to go inside of Christians to make them individual islands who can live on their own now because they have the Spirit? The Spirit came to gather them together into one body. And 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that He didn't gather us together into a body so that we could live independently of one another. He gathered us into a body so that we could depend upon one another just as a body does. The Spirit comes to create a new people of God, and that people becomes visible through baptism. This is what it means to follow Christ. It means to receive the Spirit and to be baptized into this community. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you refuse to be baptized into a church. But when you are baptized into a local church, when you join yourself to a local church, that's who the repenters are. That's who the Christians are. That's who God's people are. It's all the people in the church. If you wanted to find the people of God in AD, I'm sorry, in 30 BC or in 1000 BC, a thousand years before Christ, where would you go to find the people of God? Answer, Israel. Where would you go today to find the people of God? What country? The answer is there is no country. But there is. And the boundaries are the walls of local churches as God's people gather on Sunday morning. Actually, it's not the walls. It's a question of whether or not you're baptized and a member of that community. That's the people of God. And so how important is local church membership 
for the Christian life. It, it is what it means to be a Christian, to join yourself to the body of Christ, to be baptized. Fifth, entering into this new world still means hearing the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Be baptized. Join this community. Result, forgiveness of sins. And that's the way that it is now as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a striking connection in this passage that we have a hard time getting past between being baptized and the forgiveness of your sins. And this is not the only passage of Scripture that's actually really hard for us to understand. Look over at John chapter 20. Just back about two pages in your Bible, John chapter 20. Look at John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if they receive the Holy Spirit, now they are part of the people of God, right? It's what it means to be part of the people of God. Repent, be baptized, you'll receive the Spirit. Now you're part of the community. And look what he says next. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In this passage, there's three things that go together. First of all, receiving the Spirit. Secondly, being a part of God's people. And thirdly, having the power to forgive sins. Jesus is not saying that churches of these disciples can forgive the sins of other people. Instead, he's telling them that you can include other people in your number. Who gets to be part of the people of God? Forgiven sinners. So if we let someone in the front door, we are essentially shaking their hand and saying, welcome you forgiven sinner. We judge you to be a forgiven sinner. We judge you to be a legitimate, credible member of God's people. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he couldn't give the Spirit, but Jesus could. Jesus would bring the Spirit. The Spirit would bring with him the forgiveness of sins. And thus, everywhere that the Spirit is, there is also forgiveness of sins. So when you enter into the public people of God, the people who have the Spirit, the people who are baptized, it is God saying to you, your sins are forgiven. In other words, our membership in the local church ought to give us assurance of our salvation. And where we are not sure that a member of a local church is actually forgiven of his sins and is actually a member of the people of God, we put him back out. Because he does not, in himself, we cannot look at him and say, this one has his sins forgiven. He belongs among us. The church itself is a witness that you're a genuine child of God, a part of the redeemed. And so if you wanted to find all the Christians in the world, all the followers of Christ in the world, where would you look? You would look. If you wanted to find all the forgiven people in the world, you'd look inside local churches. This is the new community. We leave the world to enter these churches. This is the community of the forgiven. This is one of the two places inside the church is one of the two places where the Spirit of God testifies to you that you are a child of God. You should hear 
in your acceptance, your being received into the membership of a church, you should hear the Spirit of God saying to you, you are my child. And for as long as we can keep you here, you should hear that. And for a, whenever you are put out, if that time ever comes, you should hear God saying to you, you are not a part of my people. You have every reason to think that you are not. And number six, entering into this new world still means living under the reign of the Lord. In John's baptism, you came out to join the community of the mighty one. And you lived under his reign. And that's what it still means after Jesus' death. It means to come out of the world. It means to be baptized. It means to join a local church. It means to be forgiven of your sins. It means to join yourself to this new community. It means to fulfill the covenant of one another's to each other in this community. It means to partake of the Lord's Supper. It means to call each other back from sin. It means to help each other to follow Christ. It means to pray for one another. It means to encourage one another. It means to live in this new community, a community that has the authority of Jesus Christ to call you back from sin. A community that has shepherds over it that Jesus calls you to submit yourself to. In other words, in a very real sense, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ means living in submission to your brothers and sisters and leaders in a local church. You cannot call yourself a follower of Christ, a subject of the king, if you refuse to submit yourself to the people of the king. Actively submitting yourself to the discipline and accountability and teaching and encouragement of a local church. And this is why I've included a copy of our church covenant in the worship guide this morning. We won't read it in connection with the Lord's Supper today. I'd like to soon. But let me urge you to read through it sometime this week. In a very real sense, in a very real sense, the covenant that we have that binds us together is intended to be Christian life-shaped. In other words, being a part of a, this local church, submitting yourself to the covenant that binds this local church together is supposed to look a lot like living the Christian life. In other words, that church covenant is supposed to say to you, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. It means to live in this way. This is the way of the Lord. And you can tell what a healthy church is because they call you to hear to repent, to submit, not to them, but to Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. He is the mighty one. This is the path laid down by Peter in Acts 2, by John the Baptist in Mark 1, by John the Apostle in John 20. We could look at this in Luke's writings. We could see this in Paul's writings. Refusing to submit yourself to Christ's people, to Christ's shepherds, to Christ's ordinances in the church, to Christ's word as taught by his spirit who has gifted men to teach is refusing to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. And this then is the way of the Lord. What does it mean to be a Christian? It is to come out. It is to be baptized. It is to receive the spirit. It is to join yourself to this new community, this public visible 
people of God. It is to submit yourself to the Spirit's ministry through those gifted members of the body to you, through the other members of that public people. It is to look back to the coming of the Lord. It is to look forward to the coming of the Lord. It is to prepare yourself because He has died to make you a holy people. It is to purify yourself because of the hope that you have that He will come. This is the way of the Lord. It is to live in this community until He comes. It is these who have forgiveness of sins. And it is these who must, with joy, look forward to the coming of the Lord. And if that's not you, if you're not part of this community, then you must repent. John came, preparing the way of the Lord, calling people to repent, to be baptized, to receive forgiveness of sins, because the Lord was coming. And He will come again. And in view of His coming, you must repent. He's coming with fire to take vengeance on all who do not obey the gospel. You must repent. You must enter into this new people. You must leave behind the world and your sin. You must enter in. You must follow Him. All of those who wish to save their lives in this world to keep them for themselves will die. All of those who deny themselves in this world, who come out, who take up their cross and follow Him, all of these will gain the whole world. He will come again. And so you must repent and join His new community. Lord God, We pray that for the sake of Jesus Christ, we would call men and women through our proclamation of the word of Christ to repent, to come out, to be baptized, to enter into this new world, this new people, to receive the Spirit, to gather together with us, to journey safely through this world to the coming of Christ, encouraging one another and praying for one another and aiding one another to follow Christ, calling one another back from the precipice of sin, exhorting one another, edifying one another, loving one another. This is the shape, this is the path of the Messiah. And to follow Him means to walk in His ways. We pray that you would grant us grace to do this, to leave behind the world, to embrace persecution, to follow Jesus Christ faithfully within the boundaries of this local church. And we pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to help one another to do that, to be vigilant. And now, Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will portray in the Lord's Supper makes this abundantly clear. We who have received from Jesus Christ the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, we gather together around one bread, and we are thus made one body. The shape of our salvation calls us to follow Jesus Christ alongside of other Christians. And we pray that for His sake that You would train us now in the Lord's Supper to do that. And we ask this in His name.